So I know many of us here have children or have experience with children. If that is the case, and especially if you've spent time with little babies, you know that words tend to come in waves. The first kind of wave of learned words, you have the mama, dada, up, down, snack, yes, no, that kind of thing. But it's the second round of words as you kind of move beyond the basic life necessities to interacting with the world around them. In that second wave of words, we have one of the most infamous and difficult words in human history. Why? Joey, go do this. Sally, please go do that. Then we get the why. That has to be one of the most important and at the same time most infuriating words in human existence. Why? I don't know, like I don't speak any other languages. I don't know if you go to other languages, if there is a word that so palpably translates the whole parental experience as the word why. But in English, that, that word why is just, it's something else. But that word has also been central to human discovery and innovation all throughout history. It's how we learn about the world around us. Why is the sky blue? Why is fire hot? Why do apples fall when we drop them rather than just staying where they are? It has driven human history. And that little word is also how we've always started as far as challenging the authorities. Don't read this book. Why? Do what the government tells you. Why? Don't hit your brother. Well, why? And if you've ever been caught off guard with this question, and you didn't have like kind of all of your ammo packed and ready for when they hit you with it, go do this. Why? What's our answer? Because I said so. That is your go-to. It's like, because I said so. Just do the thing. But whether it's from a parental level or a governmental level or a societal level, because I said so has never been a satisfactory answer. You've never seen a person get because I said so and go, okay. Maybe they obey because they trust your authority, but more often than not, that then has to expand. It might accomplish temporary obedience, but ultimately it won't stick. The only being in the universe that can get away with because I said so is the one who holds total and supreme authority in the universe, that being our Lord God. If you really drill down, every authority structure that we have in humanity is based on something else. And particularly when we're answering challenging whys, okay, if you're answering why is that bug dead? Because you stepped on it. Like that's, that's an easy why. I don't have to appeal to anything else. But the challenging whys, the ones that really make you kind of stop in your track, we have to eventually appeal to something greater than us. 
to the basis of our authorities. And none of us can ground our authority in anything besides the Lord. Eventually, we have to say, because God. Our passage this morning is the first four verses of Ephesians chapter 6. And as we did for the instruction to husbands and wives, we're also going to include verse 21, because verse 21 is kind of the linchpin verse that starts this whole uh, discourse of Paul's on this. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul finishes this whole series of how these people should walk. Look carefully then how you walk. All of that kind of thing. And then verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That ends that previous section and starts this whole new one. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For instance, wives and husbands. Now this morning, parents and children. Starting in verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. And again, just like our message on husbands and wives, if we think about this wrongly, this could very easily miss a good chunk of our people. What if you have no children? What if your children are grown and no longer recognize your authority? What if... You're just a child, and any of this talk about children might be kind of down the road, theoretical knowledge for the future. I want us first, as we come to this passage and to each one of these wives and husbands, parents and children, bond servants and masters, recognize that all of this is pointing back that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. My title for each one of these sections, I have out of reverence, colon, wives and husbands. Out of reverence, colon, children and parents. Out of reverence, servants and masters. Because it is out of reverence for Christ that we act in this way. We are learning to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we come with this in mind. And this gives us a lens through which to view this passage. And this lens is pulled straight from the words of Scripture. And it focuses us on the ways in which reverence for Christ ought to be displayed amongst His people. Another thing that points us towards that is kind of a less obvious cultural understanding that these three categories, wife and husband, child, parent, servant, master, 
those three relationships all throughout the culture of the day were paired together in this triplet to indicate the entire ordering of the household. Basically, the whole household, there would be kind of some add-ons throughout the household, but overall, the entire household can be explained in this way. And by saying these three, he's not just saying only wives and husbands, only children and parents, only servants and masters, but it is in the entire way your household is ordered, whatever that might look like. Include some extended family in there, whoever it might be, this is how the household ought to work together. Do you have children? No. Do you have are you a child in someone's house? No. Are you married? No. Do you have servants? No. Are you a servant? No. Well, then ignore this message, except for the fact that you are a part of a household, the household of faith, God's household, and you do have a household. Whether your household is a household of one or two or a dozen, your household must be ordered according not only to God's commands, but also out of that in a manner that both reflects and glorifies the ultimate head of your primary household, which is the household of the Lord. So this passage in 6, 1 to 4 doesn't miss anyone. For we learn what it means to order our house rightly and what it means to rightly live as a child in God's household to his glory. But before we get to how this passage speaks to all of us in that way, I do want to drill down to the specific audience of this passage, that being the relationship between parents and children. And don't just tune out until I say, okay, now I get back to the rest of us, because it all fits. Paul here is using very direct language. He's not mincing words. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. And even reading that, I wonder if you didn't notice a change in terminology. You have those who are in authority in the household. You have the husbands. You have the parents. But when talking about the ones who are submitted to the authority, the wives, the children, you have wives submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. We discussed last time that the submission of wives to their husbands and all of us to Christ is to rightly order, order ourselves underneath. We count this person as being an authority. We recognize their authority, and because of that, we order ourselves and our priorities under, their, under submission to them. Wives being of equal worth and value and station in the family, and yet they are called to order themselves under their husband as they do to the Lord. But children aren't told to submit to their parents here. Children obey your parents. Language gets stronger for both children and bond servants because the assumption is these child are a part of the family. The servant is a servant in this family. They will obey. And the strictness of that is valuable because 
we have to realize that these children are a part of our family and they are to be under the authority of their parents. There is no question marks there. There is no wiggle room there. While a wife's submission to her husband does indeed include obedience, she chooses to submit to and obey his authority. Sherry wasn't stuck with me when she started dating me. She chose to marry me. Sometimes I ask myself why, but she chose to marry me and chose in that to submit to my authority as her husband. But our children born to us, they are born into and under our authority as their parents. Children are to obey their parents. But this passage even gives us a very important caveat. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. A child is required by God to obey their parents. And that kind of goes across the cultural barriers and even religious barriers. Most cultures would, would assume that. But it's interesting that there's no mention or distinction accepting the cases of believing children and unbelieving parents. It says, obey your parents as long as they're Christians, or obey your parents as long as you see them as being worthy of their position of authority. Obey your parents, Christian or no, but you obey them in the Lord. This godly submission in the household is done out of reverence for Christ. So that is the primary overarching umbrella here. And as such, should your parent or anyone in authority over you, for that matter, should your, any of these authority figures attempt to compel you to act in a way that is contrary to the commands of the Lord, then your primary obedience is not to your parents. Your primary obedience is not to your boss or to your master. Your primary obedience is not to the government. Your primary obedience is to none other than Christ. That is the overarching umbrella here. And so your primary obedience to the Lord as a child, if your parent were to command you to do something contrary to God's word, it would mean that you would have to disobey your parents in that situation. I mean, you can think at the very extreme end, the parents who would use their children to traffic illegal substances. It happens all the time. Um, parents in the unbelieving world who would forbid their children from following Christ. That happens all the time. Read any one of the accounts of a Christian child or youth coming to faith in Christ in a Muslim home. And there is no room for that. And their family would forbid them from following Christ. And they are bound by their primary obedience to Christ to disobey their parents. So I was reading about this. I got into Ezekiel chapter 20, and God's speaking of the Israelites who were exiled for 40 years in the wilderness, and he says, I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. 
but the children rebelled against me, and they did not walk in my statutes. These offspring, these children were being commanded to disobey their parents, casting off the wickedness of their forebears in favor of the righteous commandments of the Lord. Unfortunately, they did not obey that commandment, but in our submission to God-ordained authorities, whether it be wife to a husband, children to parents, ourselves to the government that God has put authority over us, those authorities themselves do not become God, nor do they override His commandments. We obey these authorities in the Lord, and children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. For this is right. And that's kind of where we get to that because I said so argument. Do this. Why? Because I said so. Well, why? Because God made me your parent and you will listen. <laughs> but, again, we can say that and we can laugh about it, but there's an element of that that is true. We are still required as parents to lead well and in accordance with the commands of Scripture, but our children are to obey our commands whether they understand them or not. But this because I said so is such a difficult thing. Why should a child obey their parent? Is it just because that's what is done? Is that what it's meaning when it says because it is right? Just because that's how it is? Or is it because the parent has the authority to punish their children up to and including death in this society sometimes? Is that the reason why our children should obey us? It is right that you should obey me because otherwise this will happen and I will have to punish you in this way. And a lot of times I have to admit that can be an easy way out for me of, okay, I don't want to or I don't have the time to take the time to go and, okay, you need to listen, you need to obey because God has commanded that you listen and obey and explain my whole thing. Obey or you'll end up on a timeout. Or obey or you will... That's, that's an easy way to follow as a parent because in our kind of transactional worldview, even kids get that. Okay, if I reach for and touch that cookie again, I'm going to get my fingers flicked on the way to the cookie so I'm not going to touch the cookie. Not because my parents have told me, don't touch that cookie, and it's my job as a child to obey them according to the command of Scripture. Maybe it's because, and this isn't so much in our culture, but particularly in Asian cultures, it's not so much the threat of punishment. If you are disobeying, you're going to bring dishonor to our family. And in honor and shame, you are going to shame our family if you are not going to obey your, your parents. Is that the reason why we obey our parents, why our children should obey us? The first reason is because this is right. Parents who are leading their family rightly should be able to expect obedience from their children, for it is right that their children would obey. And what makes it right, look at the closing words of Hosea, or even just listen. Closing words from the prophet Hosea. 
Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. Or the closing words of Ecclesiastes, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. To obey our parents, for it is right. It is right because it is a commandment of the Lord. And as I said earlier, the eternal, omniscient, all-powerful God through whom all things exist and in whom all things hold together, He gets to decide what is right. Our authority as parents is not based on the fact that I'm bigger than you so I can exercise a punishment on you. It's not exercised by, okay, if you don't do that, then I'm going to guilt you into it because you'll bring shame on the family. Our authority as parents is based on the fact that God has commanded this, and I, for God's glory, need to teach you this, and I, for God's glory, need to make sure that you are living in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God and honoring to your parents, and you need to obey because God has commanded it, and that is a fruit of your, your obedience. The two big Old Testament passages that would have been running through people's minds even already as Paul's saying this, and then he explicitly states in verse 2, come from the Exodus and Deuteronomy accounts of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord God is giving you. In Deuteronomy 5, 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. These, and particularly the Exodus reading, just the way it's worded, is what Paul's quoting in verse 2. And for us, sometimes we take a look at anything in the Old Testament and go, okay, New Testament, that's what we're doing. Old Testament is just a bunch of kind of examples that are good that point towards stuff in the New Testament. But, and particularly anything relating to the law, we go, well, the law has been fulfilled in Christ, so I don't need to worry about that law stuff from the Old Testament. I just need to focus on the New Testament. But the Ten Commandments are not part of the ceremonial law, such as like food laws and temple worship and sacrifices and feasts and that kind of stuff, that all of that was to point towards the coming of Christ. And in the coming of Christ, all of those things were fulfilled. But the Ten Commandments are a part of God's moral law that deal with our relationships as human beings, our relationships with one another, and more particularly, our relationship with God. Jesus said, we're all familiar with Matthew 5, 17, and 18, even if you don't know the verse reference. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The ceremonial law was accomplished in Christ. Its purpose was to point to the new and greater covenant that was sealed and purchased in the blood of Christ. 
but our requirement to fulfill God's moral law, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, that continues. It endures right today. We are to be holy as our Savior was holy. We are to be holy as the Heavenly Father is holy. God gets to define what is right because He made us. So He makes the rules. And sometimes we try to pull that card as parents. Do what I told you. Why? Because I made you. But, well, God made us. So ultimately there's a chain that goes back. But no one made God. God gets to make the rules because he exists. He's the only one that just exists by himself. So he defined what is right, and it is right that children must obey their father and their mother. Why? Because God has commanded it. And that is the end. And we could stop there. God could have stopped there. God could have said, do this. Go. But God was gracious, and he also gave a little bit extra here. He attaches a promise. Obey your parents in the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That was originally referring to the promised land, which the Israelites were going to take possession of. But it also applies to us today, thinking that we are living in a land not our own. We are heading to a new and greater homeland that God has prepared for us in eternity. A child's obedience to their parents is an indicator of faith and the Spirit's work in regenerating their hearts. And I say an indicator on purpose, because only God knows the heart, and we can obey in many ways that don't constitute obedience in the Lord. I mean, how many times have you looked in the face of your child knowing that they're obeying you? They're technically doing what you told them to do, but they're looking at you with that look that you're like, you're, you're doing something mean to me in your head right now, aren't you? But they're obeying but they are not obeying in the Lord. They're obeying just because they have to, because they know if they don't, then they don't get something they want or whatever it might be. But true godly obedience is a fruit of faith. And that's why when we have discussions, when I have parents come to me, they're like, well, I want my kid to get baptized. Okay. Have your children shown fruit of faith? Well, what? What, how can a kid show fruit of faith? This is a great one. Are they obedient to their parents? And not just in a begrudging, okay, I do what I'm told, but in a heartfelt, I want to honor God with the way that I live my life, and so I will obey you. It holds great promise for us and for our children to obey the Lord and he gives us this promise that obeying the Lord stores up for us treasures in heaven. We don't know exactly how that all looks and how the economy of God works in the new heavens and new earth. But this brings us to the much shorter but equally as jam-packed parental command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I hope you're listening because you would have also seen that we have children obey your parents, and in verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children. Why are they to obey their parents? But then the parental command you'd expect to be like, okay, parents now don't provoke your children. Why fathers? And that all flows from God's design for families that he started just a few verses ago. Remember in Romans 5.12 where it says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's referring to the fall. Thinking back to the fall account, who was it that ate the fruit first? Not Adam. Eve did. But then why is it that Adam is the one talked about in Romans 5 and elsewhere? Because Adam, as the leader of his household, as the leader of humanity, he's being indicted as the one who, by whom sin came to the world because he did not lead as he should. He is held accountable for his family. And so, two fathers are commanded here to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is not saying, well, mothers, you kind of get a pass. This is now dad's job. But it's saying, okay, if the family is operating as it's meant to, the father is going to be the one leading the charge here. We'll get to more of that in a minute. The first part of this command is to not provoke our children to anger. That might seem a little bit curious, but we recognize that a father's authority is at play here. Our authority as parents is at play here. And how he discharges that authority is going to affect how these commandments, how this obedience is received. I found it interesting, kind of the, the subtle differences in Colossians' account, because remember that Colossians and Ephesians are kind of sister letters. There's a lot of crossover here. In Colossians' version, in 321, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Okay, that is word for word. But where it differs is Ephesians, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I think that was something that God gave us kind of a bunch of different sides of how this can work. But a domineering father who comes in and hammers home nothing but that like military level of obedience, you do it and you do it because I said so and you are going to do it now. And that is the, that is the grounds, that is the basis, that is the, the sense of the way that a father trains their children is either going to crush their child, which from a Colossians account, lest they be discouraged, or harden them. Do not provoke them to anger. Neither of which is the goal of the leadership of a father in a home. A father ought to lead his children, not simply command them. Commands and immediate obedience are going to be a part of parenting. When I tell my kids, stop, they need to stop, whether they know why or not, because they might be running out in front of a truck, and I can see it, and they can't, because I'm bigger than they are. Stop. Okay, yes, sir. Now we can maybe have a discussion. There does need to be immediate obedience. 
But that is not the end of the story. Immediate obedience is not the goal in Christian parenting. It is a helpful part, but it's not the goal. We should lead even as our Savior led us. Christ was and is an ultimate authority unto himself. He is God the Son who has existed for all the time, all eternity. He is a member of the Godhead. And yet he said to us, Come unto me, all who are weary and labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is leadership of his people, of his family of faith. If the family is operating as it is designed to, both father and mother will be about the implementation of that command to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But ultimately, it is the primary, though not sole, responsibility of the father to see that that is carried out. And I recognize that we live in a fallen and sinful world, that this does not always happen. Sometimes the father is not a believer. Sometimes the father is not in the picture. Sometimes the father has died. Sometimes there, you can insert whatever what-ifs you want in here. Sometimes the father is not going to lead in any acceptable way. And that is heartbreaking because that is not how it was meant to be. That is a direct result of sin in our world. Sin and the fall has damaged and left our families damaged. And that is heartbreaking, and that is hard. And we as God's people in the church need to be aware of that and sensitive to that, going, there are families that need our help. Particularly, there are mothers who are needing our help and needing our concern and needing our involvement because they don't have that extra person. They don't have someone to help and care for them, and we need to help and care for them in whatever ways we can. And we need to pray for them. And we cannot just pray for them. Sometimes that's our go-to. Well, I'll pray for you. Well, that doesn't help when I need to go and do work and I have no one else to watch my kids. Well, I'll pray for you. Well, that doesn't help when my kid's melting down and, or I have multiple kids who are melting down and I can't pick which one to help out with. We need to be there for families that are affected by sin and the fall and the family is not operating the way that it should be. But ultimately, if it's going as it should be, the fathers should be leading in this way. And men, I'm looking in the mirror as much as looking at you and saying that it is that we cannot abdicate our responsibility to lead our families spiritually. It is possible that your wife is smarter than you, whether you want to admit it or not. It is possible that your wife is more spiritually mature than you are. 
maybe you just came to faith and your wife has spent her whole life growing up in the faith. Or maybe you just kind of stayed at that baby Christian phase and you're just kind of starting to sink your teeth into the meat of Scripture. So she might be smarter than you. She might be more spiritually mature than you. She might have more time with the kids than you do because you're away working. But it is still to our dads to whom God directs his command. No excuses allowed here. Parenting should always be a team effort in a two-parent Christian home. But it is the Father's job by the grace and strength that God provides to lead your family faithfully and to train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I said earlier that we would get a chance to see what it means to both order our house rightly and what it means to rightly live as a child in God's household for His glory. On a human level, our own homes, fathers, mothers, children, bond servants, all must find the definition of our individual roles defined in Scripture. And the roles of parents are wonderfully laid out here in this passage and others. A child is to obey their parents. Fathers are to avoid provoking their children. Instead, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wives and mothers are to do the same. And that coming in conjunction with their submission to their husbands and the leadership that the, their husbands are to provide. But the family is and always has been about far more than making sure that individual men, women, and children know their place in the household. The Bible is not just a parenting manual that says, this is the best way to be a parent and go. The family is not just about making sure that, okay, this child has been raised up in a semi-moral household and will be a good and functioning and productive member of society. That is not what we're shooting for here. The family has always been meant by God to be a microcosm of the gospel. God's pursuit of his bride and his love for the church. The mutual love and submission in a family is also found in the incarnation of Christ. The self-sacrifice and servant-like love of our Savior and his leadership of us in faith. The fierce commitment of the Son to obeying the commandments of the Father. The glory of sharing the truths of the gospel in your family. It's all here. And that is why looking at our society, that is why we need to be aware that the nuclear family, the family as God has created to be, is so important. To mess with the family, to forget how God has ordered the family, is to mess with the way that the family is designed by its very existence to preach the gospel. This is not just a parenting, I'm trying to raise good kids issue. This is a gospel issue of our families are meant to be a tool in preaching the gospel, and we need to acknowledge that and be aware of it. The way we order our families, whether we are singles or couples or families with children, all of it is pointing to the fact that we have arranged our lives by a greater standard than just the pragmatic wisdom of the world. I'm not just going to raise my family the way that seems best and the way that works best or the way that my children turn out the best. 
you can insert whatever pragmatic worldly wisdom you want here, but the way I'm going to raise my family is going to be according to the standard that is found here, and that is going to become a stepping stone to preaching the gospel even in my family. That is because before we identify as an earthly family, if we are in Christ, then we have been adopted into a greater heavenly family, a family with a perfect heavenly father who, even in the absence of a good earthly father, we have a perfect heavenly father who is everything that our dads should have been but weren't. We have a glorified and eternal eldest brother who has gone before us and shown us how we ought to live. Hebrews makes that very clear. He calls us brothers. We have a family where we are surrounded by faithful brothers and sisters, saints from across all time, who should serve to strengthen and encourage us. Saints who are here who should strengthen and encourage us and who we should be doing the same for a brother or sister who sees their brother or sister stepping out in front of traffic should, as long as they are using their brains at the moment, go, maybe that's not a good idea. We should be looking out for one another. We don't just let our, sometimes we let ourselves just fall on our face because that's what brothers and sisters do. But when it comes down to it, we're supposed to have each other's back because we have a family of faith where God has put it together for his glory and patterned upon his glorious plan. All of this, every part of the way we should act as parents, every part of the way we should act as husbands and wives, every part of how we should act and how our household should look and how we look, all of that is totally out of our reach on our own. I cannot raise my children the way I ought to. I cannot be the husband I ought to be. Not on my own. But I do have a Savior who has strengthened and equipped me and given me what I need to do that. It's all accomplished by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This passage and these passages on the roles and responsibilities of wives and husbands, parents and children, servants and masters, it as much informs us of our role in those various areas as well as God's role as our Heavenly Father in his household and how we ought to act in the household of faith. As we close this morning, absolutely, conduct yourselves as good fathers and mothers and children of earthly parents if you have them. Absolutely. Follow the example and the commandments set out here. But much more than that, depend upon the work of Christ in your life and your heart. Depend on the fact that you have a great Savior because we can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves. 
We must depend on something and someone greater than us. And if we don't have a Savior, if we haven't believed and trusted in Him, we cannot be any of these things the way we are meant to be. We have to know the one who has designed this whole process. We have to know the potter who has molded us for us to know and to accomplish our purpose. We are to conduct ourselves in this way, but we are to depend upon the empowering work of God to be preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. We must not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as he who called us is holy, we are also to be holy in all our conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's taken from 1 Peter. So be holy as he is holy. Be holy, parents. If you're a child, be a holy child in your family. And each one of us need to be holy children in the family of faith of whom God is the master and head of the household. And we are to live as children who are to obey their father. Why? Because it is right. Because it is good and because he said so. And he's the only parent that actually gets to say that and we have to listen and obey. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with hearts guided and carried by a deep and abiding reverence for our Lord Jesus Christ. As children of God and Father, of our Lord Jesus and order our families after the pattern that God has given us in his word. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, it is hard to be a parent. It is hard to be a child. And Lord, as you have placed us all in the role of being your children, we thank you that you are perfectly raising us up in your discipline and your instruction. You are doing that perfectly. But Lord, we confess that we are not your perfect children. We have not succeeded in obeying and honoring and following the commands of our Heavenly Father. We weren't even perfect in the way we did that to our earthly parents, much less you who are so great and so holy. And Lord, we as earthly parents, those of us who have children, we know that this is a, an incredible privilege and yet an incredible burden on our hearts. How can we raise our children rightly? We live in a world stained by sin. Our own hearts are stained with sin. Our own relationships are stained with sin. How can we rightly raise our children? And the answer is that we cannot on our own. And we beg to you that you might strengthen and equip and empower us that we might do so. You are our hope. 
the state of our earthly families is not our hope, whether it's how our children obey, whether the wife or the husband is in the picture, none of that is our hope. And it is not our hope for our families. Our hope for our families is found in you. And we are to be faithful with what we have been given, and you are faithful to use that. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to be good and perfect all the time, but Lord, we trust you that somehow, some way, you will take our striving and yet failing efforts and use them for your glory and for the good of your people, particularly our kids. God, I pray for those in our church who have kids that are wayward, who have rejected you. Comfort them and bring them peace. Help them and teach them what it means to pray for their children. Show them how they can still love and support their children, but in a way that is still healthy and honoring to you, that they would obey you in your statutes and commandments and not contravene those commandments just because, well, it's our kid. And Lord, we pray that these children would come back to you or come to you in the first place, that they might know you as their Lord and Savior, and that we might even on this earthly plane know reconciliation with them. But even if that's not the case, we pray that they might come to you and know you, that they might be first and foremost reconciled to you, that each one of our children, each one of us, each one of our family members, our friends, that they might be reconciled to you, that they might know you. And we pray that our families, our households, regardless of what they look like, who is involved in it, that our households will be used by you to preach your gospel because our households are ordered according to your commandments, to your word. Lord, you have commanded. And Lord, insofar as you enable us to, we will obey. Teach us what that means. Let us follow you with whole hearts. And send your son Jesus soon, that we might see and know what it means to live in a world, to live in a family that is without sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You're dismissed. Go from here. If they're still around, thank your parents. If they're not still around, thank God for your parents, and even if your parents weren't perfect, and in whatever ways you can, find a parent and encourage them. Help them in whatever way you can.